You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gaston Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Well, amen. Again, it's so good to be here with you today. If you will, go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. Again, that is John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26, and we're going to be wrapping up John 17 today, finishing the high priestly prayer and looking at how Jesus prays for all believers. Uh, just want to take a moment as you're turning there to thank you for your prayers and support. I know many of you reached out this week while we were uh, in Montana to uh, tell us you were praying for our safety and uh, for the work that we were doing up there. And I uh, can't wait to share more with you guys about that uh, a little bit next week and uh, in, just in conversation because uh, the Lord is, is doing great work up there and we're thankful for our mission partners. And we want to continue to urge you to be in prayer for them as they're uh, planning new churches and seeking to reach people uh, up there in Montana. But today, again, as we look at this text, again, John 17, 20 through 26, uh, we realize again that there's no surprise that this is about prayer. Jesus here has been praying, and we will be looking at that today. Back in World War I, there was a military chaplain who was going off to war. And as always, going off to war, specifically in World War I, there meant a very real chance of death. This chaplain was not afraid. Rather, he gathered his family and he taught them to pray for him in a specific way. He says, while I'm over there, you're going to want to pray for me. He said, the first prayer I want my son to learn to say for me is not, God, keep daddy safe. But rather, God, make daddy brave. And if he has hard things to do, make him strong to do them. Chaplin told his son, he said, life and death don't matter, but right and wrong do. Daddy dead is daddy still, but daddy dishonored before God is something awful, too bad for words. He went on to tell his family that, of course, it was fine for them to pray for his safety, but he said only afterwards, because safety doesn't matter near as much as honoring God in what we do. The reason I tell you this story this morning is that How we pray often reveals, again, a great deal about where we are spiritually and what our true desires are. Uh, We can see from the story of this chaplain that there was a legitimate concern, not for himself, but for God's glory. And in the high priestly prayer, Jesus is also concerned about God's glory. If we go back to the beginning, we see very clearly where Jesus talks specifically about seeking to glorify the Father. But Jesus is also concerned about praying for his people. That includes his disciples, and today we see that it includes us as well. But as we look at the prayer, I want to remind you that how Christ prays for us matters. The things he specifically prays that we would do and the things that we would have matters to us and how we are to act today as believers and as a church. So let's look at this passage together. Again, John 17, 20 through 26. I read from the ESV, but you follow along in your own Bible or on the screen. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. 
that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you once more, and Lord, we thank you so much for this time that we've had to sing your praises, to give to your kingdom, to confess to you. And Father, we ask now that as we look into your word, that you would move in us in a mighty way, that your will would be done. Father, you would convict us, you would encourage us, you would strengthen us, you would equip us. You would prepare us for what you have for us as a church and as believers. And so, Father, today we ask that as we read this word, that, Lord, you would give us eyes and ears and hearts and minds to see, hear, and understand exactly what you would have us to do. Father, we pray again that you would reveal more of yourself to us, that we may worship you more fully Father, we pray that today in this place we would be changed by your word so that we may walk more closely with you. Lord, give me the words to speak that you may be honored and glorified in all we do and say here today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we pick up here in John chapter 17, we realize that the timeline is is very important. Again, this is after the Last Supper. This is at the end of the farewell discourse. And and this is this high priestly prayer right before Jesus is to be betrayed and then ultimately tried, beaten, and crucified. And so he prays again very powerfully. Back in verses 1 through 5, we saw that Jesus prayed for himself and specifically prayed that the Lord would be glorified in and through his work. We saw last week in verses 6 through 19 that Jesus prayed for his disciples. And uh, Brother JP reminded us that it is all of God. Every blessing we have, especially that of our salvation, sanctification, and security, is all of God's grace, and he deserves the honor again and the glory. But today in verses 20 through 26, we see that Jesus is praying for all believers. In verse 20, we see clearly that Jesus says he's not praying for these only, but for all who will believe in me through their word. Now this is a clear statement. Jesus is not only praying for the disciples here, but rather his prayer extends to every single person who would believe in him as a result of the gospel ministry. So when Jesus is praying here, we need to remember that he is praying for us specifically, but he's not just praying for us. Again, he's praying for every single believer. As we think about this in in verse 20, where he says that who will believe in me through their word, What we recognize is that truly, as we go back and we look at the history of the church, we can see clearly how the word of the apostles went out, churches were planted, and the gospel thrived. The ministry thrived. The gospel spread. And so through all of that, through people sharing the gospel, churches being planted, which then shared the gospel, it spread. And today we see that it has gone all over the world. We recognize there are still many unreached places, even here in the United States. But we can be thankful that the word went forth and we are saved as a result of that, having heard and believed the gospel. And so when Jesus is praying there, he he has that in mind. And I love this passage so much because Jesus is praying for us and in so doing, he reveals his desires for us as a body of believers. 
Not just us at Bellevue, but again, every single true church and all believers, we are to strive for these things that Jesus is praying for here. Furthermore, Christ's prayer reveals how we should pray for our church and how we need to be praying for other believers. And so uh, what I want to do today is look at what Christ's prayer for the church is and what ours should be. And I, and I want to look at this again in three specific requests that Jesus makes here. First of all, I want to show you the prayer for unity in the gospel. As we look here in, in verses uh, 21 through 23, what we see is that Christ prays first here for believers to be one. There would be one. This oneness, this unity, is related again to the fact that we have a shared confession of the gospel. We believe that he was sent by the Father. We believe that we are sinners, and we believe the gospel that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. He died on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins and giving us his righteousness so that we can be made right with God. And, and all of this, again, is clear in verses 21 through 23. And so the type of unity we're striving after here is to be the unity that is experienced in the Godhead. We know we will never achieve perfect unity as believers this side of heaven. We can't even get a few believers, right? The, the old joke is you get uh, wherever two Baptists are gathered, there are three opinions, right? We, we can't achieve unity even amongst a few of us here in perfect harmony. But what we can do is we can strive to be the people that God has called us to be, and we can strive for gospel unity. And what we see is that this unity is only found in the gospel. The only unity a church can truly have is that in the gospel. Because as we look at it, I just want to ask you a question this morning, and that is what draws us together as a group of people? What draws us together as a group of people? Have you ever thought about how you and your friends became friends? How did it happen? Most of the time, what happens is we meet a person and we start talking to them and we find out that we have some shared interests, right? Maybe we like some of the same things. We do some of the same things. And so over time, it is those similarities which draw us closer together. But if we look around this room, what we find is that really Bellevue is a pretty diverse congregation in many senses. Think about it, right? And none of these categories are good or bad in any sort of arbitrary sense. I'm just explaining them to you. Economically, there's a wide range represented in our numbers. Educationally, again, we have people with advanced degrees. We have people who haven't graduated high school. Now, the difference there is not a, a good or a bad thing. I'm not pointing any of that out. I'm pointing out there's a lot of differences. We continue on. Experiences. I mean, all of us have different stories, different backgrounds. And the more I talk to people here on this mountain, what I find out is just because we're in the same area does not mean we have the same background at all. Our backstory is completely complex and complicated. Some of you moved here from other places, and uh, Lord forbid, some of you moved from up north. And as we gather together, what we found out is, man, there's a lot of differences. And so as we think about these things, the point that I want you to realize is that today, here, what brings us together is not any of those things. Because I look around this room and I go, man, some of us have absolutely nothing in common. Except one thing. And the one thing is the gospel. 
We're not a civic organization or, or a special interest group. What brings this unique group of people together here in Gadsden, Alabama, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, for some of us, that is the only thing we have in common. But that makes us closer than any non-believer who shares all the same interests and experiences. That is the tie that binds us together. I had a profound experience with this um, last year when I was in Anaheim for the Southern Baptist Convention. I remember getting in an Uber because I wanted to go eat at In-N-Out. Uh, this was my first trip out to California, and so I wanted to eat an In-N-Out burger. I, I hop in an Uber, and uh, the guy in there could not have been any different from me. Uh, I mean, I like to think I'm a pretty big guy, but this guy was big. He's a large uh, Pacific Islander. I think he was from Hawaii originally. And we started talking, and man, our background was just so different. We had nothing in common. But when he found out I was coming from the convention, he said, so you're a believer. And I said, yeah. And we started talking, and, and man, what we found out was he was just so excited because he said, man, he said, all day long I shuttle people through here. And, and all day long I, I try to share the gospel with people. And, 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 you know, we have, he said, people like me. We grew up out here. We do all these things. And, and I'm trying to share the gospel with them. But what I, I realize is that none of them are like me. He said, but me and you? He said, we're brothers. You're like me. You're a believer. As I was thinking about that, it, it was so funny. We had never met. We could not have been any more different in, in many ways. And yet, we had Christ in common. We had a shared goal. When I got out of that Uber, we prayed for California together. We prayed that he would have fruit in sharing the gospel. We had the same mission. Because what we had in common was Christ. The unity was the truth of the gospel. And sadly, what we see, though, is that so many churches miss this. Occasionally, right, we recognize there are real reasons to leave a church. Those be things like compromising the gospel or, or doctrinal heresy. But so often what happens when churches split or divide is because what held them together in the first place was something other than their mutual love for Christ and the gospel. For some of them, it was things like musical style that held them together. And when that changed, they left. For some, it's their ability to hold power. That's what united them. And when that changed, they left. For some, it was their love of a particular pastor or a particular person that held them there. And then when that pastor or that person left, they did too. What does that tell us? As we go through these things, what we realize is that those sorts of things betray a unity in something other than the gospel. Something man-centered. Something flesh-centered. And what we see here is that Christ is not honored by people liking, again, the same styles of things or any, any of that sort of stuff. Christ is honored by his people being united around their love for him and the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. And so as we look at this and we see here clearly where Christ is talking about, he says that he, he wants us to be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. The goal is that our unity is in Christ. It is in the Lord. And thus, this is not unity for unity's sake. Again, many of us, we fall into this trap at points. We don't get along just to get along. Sometimes we, we hear that saying, you know, the, the old joke about the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. 
and we say, you know, oh, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to stir the pot. Sometimes that can be a true thing, right? If what you're wanting to stir the pot or rock the boat about is dumb or small or, you know, a way on down the line issue, then yeah, right? Probably a good idea not to do that. But if what we're talking about is a gospel issue, if what we're talking about it has to do with the clarity of God's word, then stir away and you get this thing rocking. Because our unity is not just in getting along for the sake of getting along. It's unity in the gospel and the truth of what God has said. We don't keep on keeping on and compromise our convictions in order for us all to just get along. Again, if the gospel is compromised, we have to speak up and stand up and leave if there's no repentance. So what we're to do as people is to be united again with other believers that believe the gospel. And for us as a church, we're to unite with other true churches that keep the gospel and believe the gospel. There was a woman who once asked the famous pastor Harry Ironside what denomination he was. Um, apparently, this was a famous question. The more I've read about uh, historic pastors, what you find is that people always wanted to know what denomination they were. Well, this woman asked Harry Ironside, and he said, well, I belong to the same denomination that King David did. And the lady replied, well, what was that? I didn't know King David had any sort of denomination. She got kind of frustrated with him. And Ironside responded by quoting Psalm 119.63. says, I am a companion of all them that fear thee and keep thy precepts. Arnside's point was that you can be a member of a denomination, he would go on to explain this later, and, and it not mean anything. The point, the unity, is found in the truth of the gospel and whether or not we are following the Lord. If we fear the Lord and we keep his word, that is where our unity is found. Denominational ties, again, are great so long as they're faithful. I said before and I say it again, I know plenty of good churches, again, that are outside of our denomination. And I also know plenty of Southern Baptist churches I wouldn't recommend to anyone. The point in that is that denominational loyalty is not the unity we're talking about. We're talking about unity with other believers and churches that preach the gospel and live their lives before the face of a holy God. We're to be united with people that love God's word and strive to keep God's word. And that's why we refuse to unite with other churches that compromise this. Again, if a church compromises on, on critical gospel issues like the prosperity gospel or works-based salvation, even things, again, like marriage and gender, church leadership. These are issues we have to think about. There's never a good reason to violate the clear teaching of Scripture for the sake of unity. And what this does is this leads us to another place, which is that unity with Christ is disunity with the world. We can't have it both ways, and this is what so many of us, again, fail to realize. We can't have unity with Christ and unity with the world. Paul instructed the Corinthian church in this very matter in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We realize we cannot join evil with good. 
Christ and idols have no fellowship, and so our unity, again, is to be related to Christ, and we are not to be united to the evil of the world. We're to be in the world, but not of it. We're to do business. We're to work and build and contribute to society and redeem society by living out biblical counsel as best we can. But where society is evil, we cannot follow because we are united with Christ. We are not of this world. And a life that is united with Christ looks completely different. Again, that's the whole definition of the word holy. It means set apart. And what we see is that when we are living a life that's united with Christ, there is a certain impact that happens Look at verses 21 and 23. Both of them end with a recognition that the unity of believers has a gospel witness component to it. In other words, we're to be united in the gospel so that the world may believe that God sent Christ and that the world may know that God sent Christ and loves believers. So verses 21 and 23 say. And verse 22 is central to this. I recognize verse 22 here may seem a little confusing to us as we read it. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 22, Jesus speaks of giving us the glory that was given to him. And what this is not talking about is the the praise and honor and glory in that sort of sense. But rather context here in John 17 in this same prayer, if we go back the first few verses, we see Jesus connect this idea of his glory with going to the cross. And so what's happening is Jesus is saying, I am giving them, us, right, believers, he is giving us the glory of the cross. That is what enables us to be one. So if the glory of the cross and the power of the gospel is what unites believers, living in unity is a testimony to the power of the gospel and the glory of the cross. You see, I hear people, again, say it all the time, we're a gospel-centered church. Right? I've been to places where they say, that's what ties us together. And then what happens when they don't do it? looks bad. And, and to be honest, it is a, a diminished gospel witness. Our unity is a gospel witness. We all know that the churches that are racked with disunity, again, when they are trying to minister out in the community, people are usually turned off by that because... When we're divided, the world sees that and they say, oh, those people must not be serious about the gospel. And the gospel must not have any power if they keep saying, oh, that's what binds us together. They're constantly fighting each other. We've seen that in our own past, haven't we? How often do we go out and and try to share the gospel with somebody and they want to bring up something that happened 25 years ago? Happens all the time. And so what I'm bringing to our attention here and what I want us to understand is, is, again, we recognize the power of the gospel is the power of God. We're to be faithful to proclaim the gospel. And and again, uh, we recognize that the Lord is going to do his work. He will have his way. His will will be done. But when it comes to our witness, again, we recognize that Jesus is clear here twice that our unity is a gospel witness. It's not saying we do what we do just because the world is watching, but what this says is that when we are united, the world sees that we are serious about the gospel and they recognize that it has the power to reconcile us together. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians when he talks about reconciling two groups of people that hated each other. The Jews and the Gentiles. He talks about the gospel tearing down, again, this dividing wall and reconciling these two people back to God. 
If God can reconcile us as sinners to himself, we who were once enemies, now children of God, and and if God can, again, reconcile Jews and Gentiles who hated one another together, where they would worship him together in the same churches, that unity shows that there is a power in the gospel. And when we live that out, it's the same thing. And so we need to be serious about that. We need to guard our unity in the truth of the gospel. Secondly, this morning, I realize that first point is long, but it's important. Uh, Secondly, we want to see here that Christ prays for our future and fellowship with him. He prays for our future and our fellowship with him. Uh, I've repeatedly told you that the joy of heaven is not the stuff of the streets of gold or even our departed family members, but the joy of heaven is that we are with Christ. We see this here in verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Remember, Jesus defines eternal life back in John 17, 3, and he says that eternal life is to know God. The substance of eternity is knowing God. Fellowship, relationship with him. And so within this, Jesus has kind of two parts of this prayer for our future. He first prays that we would be where he is, and then secondly, that we would see his glory. It begins this section by saying, I desire. Now the word here means long for. Jesus is making clear that this is, this is a deep desire. He's longing for the day when our fellowship with him is complete, when we are all together in eternity. His prayer is that we would be where he is. And we know that even now Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and by his grace and the work accomplished on the cross, we also are seated in heavenly places according to the scriptures. Ephesians 2.6 tells us that he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Back in John 14, Christ had promised the disciples that he was making a way for them and that he was the way. He was going to prepare a place, and now he is praying about that very thing. That we would be with him where he is. Again, that is the glory of heaven, that we are with Christ. And it's staggering. Uh, From time to time, I share with you how there is a clear difference between Christianity and the false religions of the world. And as I've studied them, what I've found is that the false religions of the world, they all preach gods that begrudgingly allow humanity into eternity, if at all. Right? Gods of false religions, uh, people are nothing, and we don't want them around. The true God of the Bible is the exception because Jesus Christ, very man and very God, prayed that his people would be with him. He wants his people, and he will have his people for all of eternity, not begrudgingly, but lovingly and graciously and willingly dying on a cross in order to redeem and save us. To bring us to himself so that we may be where he is. That's powerful. And again, I think we often take it for granted. But this brings us to the second part of this request that we be with him. Jesus prays here that we would not only be with him, but that we would be with him and see his glory, his greatness. His majesty. 
Here we're talking about the glory that we, we seek all the time, the honor and the praise that Christ deserves. And he says when we are in eternity with him, we will see his glory. And his prayer is for us to behold it. Now, again, as we read that here and we think about it, it might not seem that impressive in the first read-through. But when we remember that for us to behold God's glory in our sinful state would be to destroy us. Remember Moses hiding in the rock, catching a glimpse of God's back. But for us who are redeemed by God's grace, we will behold his glory for eternity. We will see his beauty and it will shine on us for eternity. And so Jesus prays not only that we would be united in the truth of the gospel, but he prays that the people who believe in the gospel will be with him where he is. And we'll experience his glory for eternity. Again, heaven is something we talk about like, yeah, sure, it's out there. But we don't often live in light of it. Again, like Paul said, that living is for Christ and dying is gain. Finally, let's uh, move on to Christ's conclusion here. Thirdly, his prayer for his love to be in us. As Jesus concludes his prayer in verses 25 through 26, we see that he prays specifically for his love to be in us. Jesus says, The world does not know you, Father, but I do, and these know that you sent me. I've told them your name, and I'll continue to make it known. Well, for what purpose? He says, I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The purpose is that his love might be in us. Now, we receive this love by Christ showing us and declaring it to us. He made it known. Specifically, we recognize that when Christ went to the cross, he made clear the love of God. That's Romans 5.8. That God shows his love for us, right? He makes it clear. He demonstrates his love. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what Jesus is saying here. When he says, I'll continue to make it known, that's, that's it. God's love for us is revealed in Christ dying on the cross for us. And when we're saved by his grace, we have his love in us. Which again, why is that so important? Well, everything starts with our love. And here we're not talking about a, a love is love or a free love kind of thing, that worldly stuff. What we're talking about is the love of God in us and our love for him and love for others. We recognize that if you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the Ten Commandments, they can be divided into loving God and loving others. Right? We think of it, we shall have no other gods before him. We should not make images of God. This is a clear example about how we are to love God. We shouldn't commit adultery or steal or murder. Right? Those are love for neighbor. Although we recognize that all of them ultimately are about loving God the way we're supposed to. We clearly see that we have all failed in that regard. Again, if we've hated, Jesus says it's the same as murder. If we've lusted, it's the same as adultery. We stand condemned. But more, we are unable to keep the law on our own. We're unable to love God and neighbor as we're supposed to in and of our own strength when we are in sin. But by God's grace, when we are saved, his love is in us. He gives us a new heart, makes us a new creation. He indwells us with his presence in the Holy Spirit. And this enables us to love God and love our neighbor as we are supposed to. You see, we cannot do what we're called to do without love. 
And we need that love in order to be able to fulfill the calling God has put on our life. Paul made that clear in 1 Corinthians 13. Verses 1 through 3 are very familiar to us. If we speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. This is talking about honoring God and loving the Lord. I know we use this a lot of time with uh, like marriages and things like that, but this is about how we love God. Even if we do manage to keep some commandments, if there is not love there, we've gained nothing. And so Christ's prayer is that we be filled with his love, and it's powerful because it is that love that enables us to keep the law. To love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. When Jesus summed up the law, what we see is that love is a critical component of both of those. It's the first verb. And so what we see is, and what we need to understand as an application of this, is that a church that is not loving is not honoring Christ. Now, being a loving church doesn't mean we just affirm and compromise everything in the name of love. That's not a loving church. It's unloving. Being a loving church is not just that we're nice to people when they come in or make them meals when they're sick. Those are certainly part of it, but it's definitely not all of it. A loving church lovingly preaches the truth of God's word and lovingly serves others. A loving church first loves God and then loves neighbor. Now, a lot of people get that backwards, right? In the name of love, they capitulate to the neighbor first, compromising God's word and thus putting God second. But we are to love God first and then love our neighbor. Loving God teaches us how to best love others. And so if we want to be a loving church, we need to cultivate a deep and abiding, passionate love for God and his word. I think many of us tolerate God's word instead of loving it. But go through the Psalms. Listen to how the word is described. It says, I love it. It's my delight. It's my joy. I rejoice in it. So we are to love Christ, the prayer that Christ has for us is that his love would be in us. When we meet people who have the love of Christ in them, it is evident. It's clear. So as we conclude here, what does this mean for us? What's the application? Well, there are a few things. First of all, we should rejoice that Christ prayed for us and love and glorify him in all that we do. I mean, we talk about this all the time about how, I mean, I truly, it's an honor when people tell me that they have been praying for me. It is. It means something. And and a lot of times we, for whatever reason, we'll take it to mean something depending on who the person is, right? Like might mean more. I remember the sweet little old lady prayer warriors I had growing up who would say, oh, I'm praying for you. It just felt like, man, she's praying for me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be all right, right? We should rejoice that Christ himself prayed for us. We should praise him for it. Secondly, we need to pray similar prayers for our church. We should pray that our church is, again, united around the truth of the gospel of Jesus. 
We should pray that our church will look forward to the joyous eternity we have ahead of us with Christ and that we would live our lives that reflect that. Again, not reckless, but fearless, knowing that our eternity is secure. We should pray that the love of Christ is in each of us and that it is clear and made known to those around us. And that we would put to death the love of self or anything else that would seek to take that place. We need to pray for our church. We need to pray for believers. Spurgeon once said, if a church is to be what it is supposed to be, it must be trained in prayer. But he went on and he said this. and It's a hard one. He says, a prayerless church member is a hindrance. He's in the body like a rotting bone or a decayed tooth, and before long, since he does not contribute to the benefit of his brethren, he'll become a danger and a sorrow to them. Neglect of prayer is the locust which devours the strength of the church. We say here all the time when someone joins a church that it's a two-way covenant. That if you join the church, you're committing to be a part of the church, to love and to serve and to pray for the church, and that the church is to do the same for you. And so this covenant, one of the primary things that we, we do in church membership is pray for one another. So don't be, again, a rotten bone or a decayed tooth. Pray for each other. Pray for our church. Pray for the Lord's work. Thirdly, uh, we need to recognize that the opposite is true for unbelievers. Rather than unity, there is division. Rather than a blessed hope in eternity, there is a dangerous and fearful punishment. Rather than love is hatred, both for God and neighbor. I don't think any of us want those things. And so I say to you, if you're here and you have not believed in Christ, repent of your sins. Follow him as Lord. Experience the blessing of the Christian life. Throw yourself on his mercy. As we've seen, he is a loving and gracious Savior. And our hope is in him alone. So today, no matter what we face, whether it's in a business meeting tonight, or whether it's the frustrations of living in a sinful world this week, whatever it may be, may we be united in the gospel, may we be secure in our future, and may we be people who show the love of Christ regardless of those situations. Let's go to him in a word of prayer. Dear God, we come before you now, Lord, thanking you for the prayer that we have looked at today, for your word Lord, we see that you are good and you are loving and you are gracious. And Father, as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper here in a moment, we pray that you would even now begin working in our hearts and, and showing us where we've fallen short of your glory and your word. Lord, strengthen us. We pray your will would be done as we have this time of reflection and response. That Lord, if there's someone here again uh, who is not a believer, that you would call them today. They would come and receive salvation. Lord, we pray that if there's someone here who's hurting, you would encourage them. Father, you know exactly what our needs are here. And again, we pray your will would be done and your word would go forward. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.